and welcome back to Metastation for our discussion of His Dark Materials episode 102, The Idea of North. My name is Erin. I'm an English professor in Mississippi. I'm Claire. I'm a writer in Portland, Oregon. And I would like everyone to know that um, on our like recording uh, program, um, Claire typed in her guest name as number one Mrs. Coulter stands. So just a little preview <laughs> for where we're going today. Although I have to ask you for clarification though. So like, are you really, is it that you're Mrs. Coulter's number one stand or are you Mrs. Coulter's interior decorators number one stand? Uh, what a great question. Thank you so much for asking. Um, I, <laughs> yeah, so my, <laughs> um, I, it is, um, it, you know, it's really, it just based on everything about who I am, gorgeous and sexy MILF with an absolutely flawless apartment is an evil arch villain I cannot root for. <laughs> I just really resent being put in this position. <laughs> <laughs> it is truly perhaps the cruelest thing that uh, a show could do to you is, is create a MILF. With an amazing, like unbelievably amazing uh, Art Deco style apartment. I'm sorry for the background noise. My dog is like attempting to dig a hole in the futon. I don't know why. Um, <laughs> what would you stop, please? Yes, you. Thank you. All right, now he's just like looking at me quizzically. Um, I'll pretend he's my demon. <laughs> have he's trying to tell me something very essential anyway yes this is Coulter such a divisive character that I I spent the entire episode like drooling over her apartment and her clothes and <laughs> her hair <laughs> yet this is the yet to be confronted with the depth of her evil you know it's just it's rough man <laughs> the absolute worst yeah but um, design porn aside, I think a um, very good place to start uh, our sort of discussion of the episode is that I think actually they they do some really magnificent plot and emotional and character work. The opulence of where she lives serves a real function. You know, from the minute Lyra gets out of that car and is sort of staring up at this incredibly gorgeous art deco apartment of which, you know, she already, I think, you know, knows that clearly like the one floor that Mrs. Coulter owns is going to be like the penthouse. Like that's just how she rolls. And then it's like in the gold elevator and the marble and she gets her own room and the bed is so comfy and it's like all the pill, like all of the, the, all the sort of trappings of like wealth and, and grandeur and comfort and sort of fabulousness are part of why it takes Lyra such a long time for the, for the real sense of menace to kind of break through, you know, um, like the cage is so pretty. It takes you a little while to realize that you're in it. Yeah, and I think like another uh, another piece of the uh this adaptation that kind of like was really I thought like really like poignant um was that you know it's it's like both the sort of like trappings of the apartment and how beautiful and comfortable everything is but also there's that like that scene with Lyra and Mrs. Coulter in the bathtub where Mrs. Coulter is like giving her a bath and washing her hair and stuff. I just sort of like felt you could almost feel so palpably like this is a little girl who is like, you know, 
like starved for touch, you know, and for love and for that kind of, you know, like she was taken care of in the college, but you know, she never had like a mother to sort of like do that kind of like really like, you know, like, like bathe her so tenderly and that kind of, you know what I mean? So it's like, it's, it's, it's also the, the way that, that Mrs. Coulter kind of like fulfills that mother role that Lyra never had and is sort of like pushed down, but you can see her longing for that is another reason why she really, really wants to believe even, you know, even like when Pan is pointing out, like there are like signs that things aren't great, why she's like so desperate to want to believe what she's being sold. And that part just like, like my heart just like broke for Lyra. Oh my God. Yeah. Well, it was so like, if you look at the ways in which, because Pan is a part of Lyra, he's sort of the voice inside her, like the sort of deep, deep, deep in her subconscious that she doesn't want to hear. You know, it's like every time he's sort of reminding her to look around and be careful and this is a red flag. I think the thing that's really devastating is it's like all along there is a part of Lyra that knows she can't trust this. Yeah. That knows that like something is not quite right, that this isn't real, that there's still a lot that they don't know about this woman. And it's like the way that she's grown up so isolated and and the way that, you know, she's had so few adults in her life that she feels like she could actually rely on. From the very beginning, there is, like, there's a small, small piece of her that knows it's all sort of too good to be true. And that's really heartbreaking in its own way as well. I mean, like, it's it works out well in this circumstance because it does turn out that Mrs. Coulter is evil and that her gut was right and that she should have been, you know, more judicious. But it's also a sign of the fact that, like, once again, there are no safe adults in Lyra's world. Mm-hmm. Even the ones yeah. who mean well – like the master and the professors, like can't actually really keep her safe or take care of her. Like she's, she always somehow kind of ends up back like on her own resources, you know, so far. And in this part of the story, that's a gift that's beneficial because that's what sort of gives her the heads up to get out while she still can, you know, and it keeps her safe. But it's also sort of of a piece with the way she clings to Lord Asriel until he sort of rejects her and shakes her off. It's like she goes straight from him to Mrs. Coulter. You know, she's just looking for somebody, you know, any adult who wants to sort of play any kind of a parental role in her life. And she keeps like almost getting it and then it's taken away. And I think it's just... It's so devastating to watch, kind of watch her realization, like that Mrs. Coulter is not just not a nice person, but is evil to a degree that even Lyra would never have considered. But it's also really, for me, I felt like there was as much relief in that moment, you know, as there is sadness, because the way I thought the most masterful thing about that this episode was like, the way they played out abuse dynamics was flawless. Yeah. Flawless. It really was. From from the very beginning of the like, you know, because like you, like in an abusive relationship, it doesn't start with physical violence. 
You know, like it starts with little things like kind of like policing her behavior in public or like changing her hair and clothes, like, you know, just like, like little kind of like conform to be more like the way I want you to be, like make this little compromise, make this little compromise, you know, like here's a thing that you do that's sort of an instinctive part of who you are and I don't like it. And now you're going to sort of be on edge the whole time, like trying to, you know, make sure that you're pleasing me. Like, like all of those sort of like, and it's all, all like little things, you know, like little bits of gaslighting and little bits of manipulation and the expectation of Lyra's obedience and conformity sort of framed in the guise of like helpful maternal advice, you know, like this is how women like us get by in the world, you know? So like, you have to like, let me mold you and shape you and like, and there'll be rewards for that. Then you'll get to be an explorer and go to the North and I'm going to introduce you to this person, you know, and we get to go to the Arctic Institute and, and all like all of these things where it's sort of like, like little by little by little pushing her into a corner where finally when she kind of like, you know, pushes back and lashes out, that's when, you know, Mrs. Coulter snaps is what like the first time Lyra really says like a hard no, like, nope, here's a line I won't cross. Like I'm keeping this bag with me. And then, you know, and then it goes into violence. And then afterwards you get sort of the kind of the performance of, being sorry and wanting to mend fences and, you know, I shouldn't have done that. Like all like, like it just like, it felt like a perfect kind of illustration of how somebody who is, who is smart and savvy and not necessarily naturally super trusting and, you know, and has a little bit of kind of suspiciousness and, and craftiness of her own still kind of like wakes up and finds herself in the middle of, you know, this, prison that she suddenly feels like she can't get out of just kind of like feeling those like beautiful ornate guilt walls kind of closing in on Lyra is so chilling like the sort of horror movie aspects of the episode are so great one thing I thought was really cool or really really interesting about Mrs. Coulter in this version um and the way they kind of set up you know, not only her dynamic with Lyra, but also her like understanding of herself um, as as like a person in her role in the world was the way that she sort of frames, you know, uh, so much of the, th- the stuff that she goes about, like changing about Lyra, like her, you know, her appearance and her behavior. Um, she sort of frames it as saying like, you know, like this is I'm teaching you sort of your route, your route to power. Um you know, starting with that moment when they're at the Arctic Institute for lunch where, you know, Lyra's running around like all excited and she kind of is like, chides her to sit down and, and behave herself. And she says, like, to look around the room, do you see any other women? Um, you know, and so like what one thing that I thought was so fascinating about Mrs. Coulter was the way that that she very sort of like clearly, although sort of like um, implicitly, not explicitly ties her power to her femininity. She's basically like, you know, like you're like, do you really, you look around, there's, this is all men. So like the way that we as women, you know, that, that she understands that you can sort of like gain and wield power as a woman in this world is through this, like really, um, you know, like very, very carefully structured, very, very carefully feminine performance of feminine, you know, as performance of feminine 
be. Um, or sort of like you have to like, you have to have the right clothing and, you know, you have to have the right, you have to have your hair done correctly. You have to like sort of behave in like what people expect a kind of like genteel feminine way to behave is. And I feel like, you know, her apartment is also kind of like a performance of that, you know, but I thought it was like, you know, sort of putting that, that side of her, you know, where's the, the, the sort of like the ways that she's looking to mold and control Lyra seem like, you know, as they like simultaneously, like obviously like a piece of sort of more like nefarious plans, but then also kind of acting out on to Lyra, this kind of like genuine belief in what is best for her. But that belief is very warped by the way that it sort of felt like, like her only choice, the only choice is to simply, it's kind of, it's, it's almost like, like, lean in feminism basically you know what i mean it's, yeah 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 the world yeah. is like structured for men it's structured by their values and the way to get ahead as a woman is to figure out you know like what you're supposed to do to succeed under those conditions and just like lean all the way into those conditions rather than trying to sort of like you know push back or question them or flout it's like no like you want power as a woman you have to sort of gain it by looking like you're not grasping for power, you know, by sort of mm-hmm. presenting yourself as sort of like feminine and delicate and, and sophisticated and, um, and maternal and, uh, and all these other sort of like things that we tend to associate with femininity. And so like the, the, the kind of fascinating thing that happened, I thought also in that scene where she finally snaps, you know, and turns on Lyra um, there's that exchange that she has with Lyra right before she like, you know, totally snaps and has her Damon attack Pan, which is also just like somehow so much more upsetting, you know, to like one mm. demons, you know, like one demon attack another, even than if she had just hit Lyra directly. Uh, uh-huh. Well, she just sort of stands there very coolly yeah. and just watches. And just watches, you know, like she like, yeah. Uh, and Lyra's like writhing on the floor. But like, but even before that happens, there's that moment where Lyra confronts her and says, like, you were angry. And she says, no, I wasn't. And she says, yes, you're angry. And, and Mrs. Coulter says, no, I wasn't. And you can tell, like, I think to me in that moment, like the way that that um, Ruth Wilson played it, I thought it was fascinating because it's like simultaneously. Like the her denial of anger is like so central to Mrs. Coulter and the way that she like sees herself and the way that she sort of like crafts this sort of image of herself in order to exert power over people without them being aware of it. And like, and that moment when she like, you can see like when she denies that she's angry, you can tell to me, it seems like it's not just that she's saying, no, I wasn't to Lyra. It's not just that she's lying to Lyra. It's that she's like, it's it's this sort of knee jerk, like, no, I wasn't, you know what I mean? Like she, she has to deny her own anger, um, which to me in the sort of context of this performance of femininity as a means to power, like, you know, that sort of like that very troublesome relationship between women and anger, right? Where like, if you're with any kind of power and you express any kind of anger, like we saw it in 2016, we're seeing it again with Elizabeth, any kind of anger, 
you know, like immediately the patriarchy turns it against you, you know, you become shrill or, you know, like, or, or masculine or whatever. And so like, you can see that kind of internalized is not just to me, it's sort of read as like, it's not just that she doesn't want Lyra, like that, that Lyra saw something happen that she doesn't want Lyra to know. That's part of it. But part of it is that she absolutely cannot let anyone ever perceive her anger. Like it's so important to her to never show anger, but I think also even almost to even feel anger. Like there's a moment when she delivers that line where it feels like she's like, no, like she's denying to herself that she even felt that anger, that it's like buried so, so deep. And she's so, so detached from like the depth of the anger that like that she very clearly has. That is this kind of moment of like Lyra saying that like doesn't just call her out in a lie, but it like cracks her entire persona, her, you know, like persona that she herself believes in. Um, so there's this like there's this like interesting sort of critique of or or examination of like femininity and power under a really under patriarchy that I thought was really fascinating in this episode. Yeah. Well, and what I, what I loved the most about that, I totally agree with everything that you said. And I think not having read the books in a really long time and having watched sort of like only a couple of snippets of the, um, of the older movie before we started, I think one of the things that this episode really brought home that I'm, that I'm really loving about like this, this sort of, interpretation of who Mrs. Coulter is as opposed to um the movie and and from what I remember from the book is like like I my sort of picture of her and I think one of like when I was saying last week like like I felt like Nicole Kidman in the movie sort of very much like like her performance was sort of like that was the Mrs. Coulter in my head right? and like sort of like aloof and icy and um and sort of blank and like very very much a creature of the magisterium you know mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. Sort of introduced to us as very much like kind of a um you know or organically like you know moving along the same path and sort of sharing some of the same goals and and that she's very much like a product of, you know, of their thinking. And what I think is so cool about the way, like a, a, a really kind of fascinating, complicated, messy change that they, I think, have made in this version of it is like, you know, is it, it sort of feels like Mrs. Coulter in this version is very much sort of out for Mrs. Coulter and the magisterium is a tool mm-hmm. she has leveraged to, to get to where she wanted to get to, but she does still sort of exist in a way more adversarial relationship with them, both kind of individually with those men and, sort of in opposition to them as an institution. Like, it's like, like they have, they have a truce. It feels like more than she's just kind of unquestionably going along with, you know, with what they want her to do and what they, what they, you know, what she believes. And, um, and I, cause I feel like my, like my sort of picture of her from what I remember from the books is that there's something kind of like, 
we get so little of a picture of like her like interior life. You yeah. Know? Like, yeah. Like deep down, like what drives her, who was she before she arrived at the moment in the story where we meet her? How did she, you know, get teamed up with the Magisterium? Like how did she, how did all this stuff begin? You know, like there's, there's very, there's very little of that. Like in in terms of the I mean I don't know maybe there is in the um in the second trilogy but it, from what I, I don't remember, think like, so oh. I don't remember that much either honestly okay um, yeah so yeah. it feels like there's there's this kind of like like she's there's something about her kind of like her remoteness and how difficult she is to read and how kind of calm and composed she is all the time that is part of what makes her scary but you also you don't dig that deeply beneath that. And I think that what Ruth Wilson's doing and, and what they've done with the writing here is that they've given us like, this is a Mrs. Coulter where you really can understand how she became a monster, you know, yeah. and, mm-hmm. and that there is that there are, there are tiny, tiny little moments of an actual human person visible beneath that surface. And that makes her even scarier. Like the, like the moment that I, that I loved was like when she, when she's outside Lyra's door after, you know, like when Lyra goes in there to cry, like after, you know, she's, she's assaulted her and yeah. Lyra goes into her room and she, Mrs. Coulter is standing outside her room and there are like, actual tears and there's this incredible moment like it's so subtle where you know you she stands there for a bit and you watch the tears roll on her face and then she kind of shakes it off with this little smile of which the subtext is very clearly like all right marissa you're being silly like like let's like Mm -hmm. put it back in the box let's go you know and you watch her like pack the emotions back up in a box and lock them away. Like the whole thing is happening on her face, but like the tears were real. Like there's a real, like, like she's not a robot, you know, she's not Mm -hmm. like a sort of blank slate. And that makes it even more chilling. Like to know that, you know, potentially like at some point in her life, you know, before, she became who she became. She was a real person who felt things. And so like, it's a choice, you know, the things Mm -hmm. she does are presented to us so much more clearly as choices, as opposed to, for example, like if she had been, you know, sort of a, like a mindless product of the magisterium, you know, like a, like the difference between like a, like somebody who's raised in a cult versus somebody who like, you know, like comes to it as an adult later in life. You know, like if you grew up in Westboro Baptist Church or Scientology or something like that, and you're, you know, sort of repeating back their talking points, it's like, if that's the only world that you've been exposed to, you know, it, it it is hard to fault somebody for kind of going along with that if that's all that you sort of know and believe is right. And so there's sort of something kind of almost, you know, like Borg-like about sort of original Mrs. Coulter where she's just sort of like, this is what the Magisterium wants and she's sort of the weapon that they wield to do these things. And because she's a woman and and sort of composed and non-threatening, that that is sort of an asset to the Magisterium's work. And this Mrs. Coulter is, is very much like it feels like she's in the driver's seat, you know, like, or or at best, like she and the magisterium are kind of mutually using each other. 
but she's making concrete, intentional choices with all of the sort of harrowing, terrible things she does. And it's a nice example of, you know, I, I think the question of like, like, quote unquote, humanizing villains can be a really messy one because mm-hmm. like, like you, you know, there's always sort of a line past which giving relatable, like emotional context and explanations and, and background and um, sort of relatability to why a person makes terrible, cruel choices, like can run the risk of sort of tipping the audience over the edge into like, are you asking us to like empathize with this person? But then if you don't, if you do none of that, then you're just sort of like, okay, well now you're just, you know, like now you're just snidely whiplash. Like now you're just evil because you're evil. And that's not interesting at all. You know? So I feel like how to walk that line between giving us a really clear understanding of like we have, I feel like we have such a, vivid picture of the world that this Mrs. Coulter lives in, how she's had to like claw her way up through the ranks as the only woman who is smarter than, you know, half these stupid men who sort of effortlessly, because they're part of this patriarchal power structure, have all of this access just handed to them that she's had to fight for and how that has sort of turned her into a person who is sort of like playing like playing the role that will get her the farthest in this very sort of calculated way. And there are pieces of that that are relatable. You know, there are pieces of that that are, like you said, like the sort of lean in feminism, you know, that every woman CEO who tells her underlings, like the way to get ahead is just to like be like a man. And, you know, like, like there's parts of that where it's like, yeah, that's a message that we hear. There's like, that makes sense in a way. And yet it's not, they're not doing that in a way to get us to like feel sorry for Mrs. Coulter as a victim of, you know, toxic misogyny in the world that she lives in. Like she is still very much the agent, you know, making the decisions in her own life. Like she is not, she's not a victim, you know, like she's at the mercy of some forces that she can't control, but she, is she's found her own way to sort of work within those constraints to still get what she wants. So I think it's a really like it's 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 a really I think well-crafted and nuanced take on like how do you how do you make it so the audience can understand this villain like as a full human being who has relatable human traits and has very clearly kind of like gone through, you know, her own shit. Um, and, and yet like that, that has like, it's not like, well, you know, you can forgive her for the bad things that she's done because bad things have happened to her, you know, like I yeah. they walk that line really nicely. And I do think that like, so I, I've been reading, um, Devin Maloney, who recaps the show for, for Vulture, um, had a really fascinating point, which I had not considered, which is like the moment where we see her hit her demon. Yeah. Like, like the, like that is like in this world where the demon is a part of you, like that is self harm. Like that is like she's angry at her demon because she's angry at herself. Like this is a, a piece of sort of her own, self-loathing and inner violence towards 
herself. And so if you look at the places where, like the sort of moments where she and her demon are in opposition to each other, what is that telling us about this really sort of messy, ugly relationship that she has with herself on the inside? Like, I thought that was a really, like, like that's sort of where you kind of see the cracks. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And it comes at a moment where it comes at a moment where her, um, her sort of control had slipped, right. You know, where she's sort of like this like perfect facade that she had put up for Lyra um, you know, like the, uh, they had slipped up and Lyra was able to sort of catch her in a lie or catch her in, in a contradiction. And so I think that kind of moment of like, yeah, of like self-harm is kind of, you know, it's kind of a moment of like her absolute intolerance for her own weakness, you know, which is, I think, which fits, per- which fits very, very well, I think psychologically with, you know, this sort of person who, who looks around the world at the way that power is structured and the way that it's gendered and basically is like, all right, I'm just going to figure out how I can, how do I like mold myself into what I need to be um, in order to, you know, like wield power in this world, you know, to like, to be significant in this world. It's like a very like, like hardcore Slytherin sort of. uh, Oh yeah. uh, Mm -hmm. Um, characters I think is really fascinating. And another thing I think that, um, that, I, that makes her like, you know, I think I, I love this show's version of Mrs. Coulter because I, I completely agree with you. I think she's like so much more, there's so much more dimension to her than there is in the books. And again, like so much of that, I think in the books is because, um, we don't get much of her, like from her point of view, it's like mostly through Lyra and, kind of like other people's characterizations of her, which like, you know, people are like terrified of her for, for good reason. Um, but I think, you know, one thing that I, that I really like, and that I think like so much of the credit goes to Ruth Wilson's performance, because like you said, she's just so complex and nuanced in the way that she kind of can convey so much happening behind the, the sort of facade um, is also that, you know, we get to see, a little bit of Mrs. Coulter's um, longing for Lyra. You know, we get there, we get a few little yes. of, we, we get sort of glimpses of the fact that she was a mother whose baby was taken away from her and who, although I don't think she, you know, this is not a woman I think who ever wanted to be a mother, right? Like, it's not like, I, I'm not, I'm not, impl- I'm not saying like, I'm reading this Mrs. Coulter as having like pine for Lyra and just want to, you know what I mean? Not like to that degree. So like, but someone who's like, who is a mother who lost her baby, you know, who, who in many, many ways chose power, chose her career, you know, like over Lyra, who has, who has kind of come back to claim Lyra, I think mostly not because of her maternal instincts, but because of, you know, other things, but who, when she's kind of with her child, can't help but feel some of these feelings of, of love and connection. And, um, and, and you can see that she's conflicted, you know, sort of like there's the bath scene, which is like, definitely a perform like she's that is the scene is like she is she's grooming Lyra I think it's very much sort of like 
clear that she's like grooming Lyra, like literally and figuratively, right? Like she's grooming her and that she's right, bathing, right. but she's yeah. grooming her psychologically by like sort of being like kind and all these things. And, and I think she recognizes that Lyra's like touch starved and things. Um, but you know, that, that sort of moment when Lyra goes to bed and she stays in the bathroom and sort of like, she's just like sitting by the bathtub. You know, those moments where, again, that's another moment where she, like, you could see the kind of, like, wistfulness, you know, like, like, being a mother bathing her daughter kind of hits her. And I think in a place that you can kind of see she doesn't expect. And then again, she kind of, like, shakes it off, you know, and, like, puts herself together and goes back to doing what she planned. Um, and I, but I think, like, another moment, you know, like, in that after, um, after she attacks, pan um you know and she lets it slip that lord asriel is her father you know you see that moment rage slips again and she says you know he's like he's a failure of a man and a failure of a father and i think you can see there it's like like the the echoes of the the anger and the sort of antipathy in her relationship with him and the sort of like the the really sort of bitter way that fell apart but also the sort of you know there's like a sort of like undercurrent of rage towards him as the father of this child, you know, as sort of sense of like jealousy of her connection of her, like clear sort of like, you know, like, like longing for Laura's Azriel, you know? So, so I just like these moments sort of bubble up where you can see that she is conflicted by, you know, sort of between her, like the fact that Lyra is a tool for her and then these feelings, these sort of like maternal feelings that I think she wasn't expecting, you know, again, it lent more depth to um, to her character than in the books. That's like not quite. I think there's like a few moments where like it's sort of mentioned here and there. But like I fe- it felt like much more sort of like it felt more like we were experiencing it with her. I think, you know, there were more private moments. Um, but then also, like, I think, you know, knowing that eventually, you know, Here's our first spoiler of this episode of this podcast. Um, that eventually Mrs. Coulter will save Lyra from, um, being severed, um, from Anne. You know, like that was one of those things in the book that I felt like I remember thinking, like, it, it you know, it, it, I was surprised. Like, it was like a surprise twist because, like, at that point, it didn't really seem like she cared that much to Lyra. And I think, again, that's probably because it was a surprise to Lyra. But in this, I'm sort of like, okay, like I can see the, that groundwork being laid, you know, like that this is, yeah, this is a character yeah. arc for Mrs. Coulter, you know, that she's going to like arrive at a point where she finds that she's going to choose her daughter's well-being over her, her sort of like plans and goals and, and the magisterium. Yeah. And I think that that, like, I, that was a piece of the book that I like, like I had forgotten. And then as soon as she sort of dropped in the like, you know, like Lord Asriel is your father, I was like, oh, right. And I think that they, I think they've done such a good job, like you said, of sort of seeding in like, there is a sort of piece of her that you can feel already has this sort of like consciousness of this other life that she could have led and isn't because of choices, you know, choices that she made, choices that Azrael made, like all kinds of different sort of circumstances, but like this sort of, the sort of a ghost life of, you know, yeah. like the three of them together as a family is still sort of emotionally present for her in some ways where sometimes that is the thing that's the rage trigger, you know? Yeah, that yeah. Like, 
like the things that she could have had and the way that her life could have been different. You know, like when she, when she sort of, when she lies to Lyra about, when Lyra asks, you know, like, who's my mom? And she's like, you know, it could have been anybody. He always had a girl in his arm. It's like, that's also true and not true. You know, like where it's like, like the part of it that is her, you know, her denying that the mom is her, like that part is the lie, but it also feels like, you know, she's telling us something real about probably like the way that things went wrong between her and Azrael, like why Mm -hmm. they couldn't sort of settle down and become a nice, cozy Arctic exploring family, you know? (laughs) Um, And like, like that there were sort of, there were kind of fractures built in. Um, And so that was something that I thought was really just kind of, the sort of broad strokes of I think a lot of what they did in terms of her character work this episode were were sort of pinpointing those little moments where where she says something that's completely true. Mm-hmm. You know? And um and she may she says it maybe for her own purpose or says it with an agenda or says it accompanied by a lie or sort of hidden under a lie, but moments where you're like, this is like, this is this woman saying something that is absolutely real about how she experiences the world. You know, it is probably like absolutely emotionally true to her that like, you know, like her, her resentment of being the only woman at the Arctic Institute, you know, which mm-hmm. Lyra thinks is like a cool novelty. And for her, it's probably like a sort of wearying and exhausting daily experience of mansplaining. You know? <laughs> it is probably absolutely true to her that, you know, that there, that, that Azriel's ability to jet off to the North and never be pinned down in one place and her not being able to do that is, because he's a man and she's a woman, like there's like he's got a level of freedom that she doesn't have, and there are sort of personal reasons why that freedom has like has hurt her, you know, mm-hmm. like that he's like him sort of bouncing around from place to place and being kind of a philanderer is only possible because he's a man, you know, like he can go from and she's so she like lives in London and she's sort of hemmed in, you know, in in this one place trying to sort of do the work that is meaningful to her from sort of within the framework of like what's possible for her as a woman. And it's like that resentment is real. It's like the, you know, and her, like you said, like her feelings for Lyra, like there's a, there are so many parts of, you know, of those sort of scenes together where you feel like she's kind of, you know, like she's not to the same degree that Lyra is, but it's like, they're both kind of, fantasizing a little bit about this becoming, you know, a, a real familial relationship. Yeah, like, you yeah. can tell that there's a part of her that has been longing for for someone to kind of pass her wisdom on to, you know, like yeah. somebody to look up to her that she's, that she's sort of been through the ringer. She's learned all of these things. She's sort of accrued all of this, you know, wisdom about how to be a powerful woman in these sort of circumstances. And, and that she that she takes a genuine pleasure in in trying to shape Lyra into sort of being like a junior version of her, like that gives her something that's real and genuine, you know. And and it's only when it becomes clear to her that Lyra will never and and is constitutionally incapable of becoming like a junior, you know, Mrs. Coulter, that then it becomes, you know, like that's sort of when the 
that becomes sort of the violence trigger, mm-hmm. you know, is sort of a like a, a ripping away, I think, a little bit of an illusion that she also was taking real pleasure in, mm-hmm. you know. So it's just so it's just fascinating the sort of this juxtaposition between what are the pieces of Mrs. Coulter that are this sort of flawlessly calculated artifice, and what are the pieces where we're seeing like who she really is and these sort of moments of I, I mean calculated honesty you know mm-hmm, like mm-hmm. i think where we're telling the truth also achieves her goal but i think the thing about lord asriel like that i was going back and forth on this but i i think that that actually really was an accident like i think that that really was the mask dropping and her revealing something that she hadn't intended to reveal that she yeah sort of yeah she, i agree she kind of fixes it and and gets back on track and uses it once again like, like, finds a way to use that to her advantage. Yeah. But the actual snap, I think, was a real, a real human snap. Like, a real, like, her genuine, you know, f- feelings about Lord Azrael and all of their sort of ugly, messy complexity just sort of, like, burst out. You know, like, what is he, what has he ever done for you? He's a failure of a man and a failure of a father. It's like, that's a, that is a real deep thing. Yes. That she has been holding inside and it comes exploding out. And so I think that, I think those sort of moments were really interesting because like that, you know, we, we have such a clear sense of, um, of sort of how the, you know, I think how the, how the relationship between the two of them, even though like we, we still have not and, and won't for quite some time ever seen the two of them in the same place. But as these sort of like, defining adults in Lyra's life, even before, you know, she knows that that they are her parents, but sort of like what he represents and what Mrs. Coulter represents. Like, I think being able to sort of draw those lines and sort of see like the ways in which, you know, kind of like all three of them to varying degrees have this sort of um, moments where, I don't know, where you can sort of feel feel their awareness of, like, the life that they could have had but didn't. Yeah, exactly. And I think, like, Lyra, very interestingly, can sort of, like, almost subliminally sense that with both of them in ways that she's too young to really understand, but she can sort of, like, feel that it's there. You know, and it's, like, interesting to watch her sort of, I think, respond to that undercurrent in Mrs. Coulter's behavior towards her and really sort of like, and, and long so much, she wants so much to believe that that is the truth, you know, the primary truth, the, the sort of the truth that is driving Mrs. Coulter's behavior and decisions rather than the kind of like reluctant truth that Mrs. Coulter is trying to repress. Um, and you know, one other thing that I, that I hadn't thought about until, uh, until we were talking that I think is like really fascinating too, um, with Mrs. Coulter and Lyra um, and, and their demons is, um, you know, we never see Mrs. Coulter's demon talk to her. They like look at each other, you know, like they make eye contact. Um, they seem to be, she can sort of like communicate commands to him non-verbally, but they never talk. Whereas like in contrast, you know, like Lyra, you know, in many ways, it's kind of interesting because Lyra is like, she got her sort of like chaos Muppet, you know, like fuck your status quo-ness from Lord A- Lord Azrael. Um, and she she got her like, 
her lying abilities and her sort of like her, her sort of emotional self command from Mrs. Coulter. Um, one really fascinating thing to watch, I think sort of between in this kind of like showdown between Mrs. Coulter and, and Lyra, which eventually sort of becomes a showdown of lies, you know, like each lying to each other and trying to detect, you know, sort of catch each other in lies is that, you know, like it, it, for Lyra, no matter how much she lies, and no matter how much she tries to lie to herself, you know, no matter how much she tries to convince herself that this kind of like golden cage is what she wants it to be. She always has Pan there talking to her. You know, Pan is always there to say, yeah, listen to me. You know, like that isn't the pipes making that noise. That's something there's something wrong. And, you know, something is, mm-hmm. you know. Um, yep. Yep. There's like those we talked about this time, you know, in the last podcast, of course, like those kind of levels to it where it's like this is a piece of her telling her things that she would rather not believe sometimes or rather not think about, but like, she still hears him, you know, she still, she still listens even when she sort of stubbornly um, wants to push him away. Like eventually she, you know, like it, it gets through. And I think, you know, it's so it becomes then to me so telling that Mrs. Coulter's demon does not talk to her. Um, and as I all in the in the books he also doesn't you know talk to her very much it's like one of the one of the quietest like i think every once in a while they're like they'll like she'll like murmur something you know but or he'll like tell her information but they don't you know they don't talk even when they're in private when no one's around in those like moments when it's just her we see they don't you know like she doesn't she doesn't even yell at him when he screws up you know like he doesn't he doesn't say he's sorry whatever it's just like silent and i think like the way that that sort of conveys the degree to which she has embedded herself in her own kind of like emotion, like the ways that like she can't even to herself face up or, or, or acknowledge feelings and thoughts that, that don't, that aren't what she wants them to be. You know what I mean? Like, Mm -hmm. yeah, not even her demon can say not even like her subconscious can say to her like hey what about this thing that contradicts everything that you want to believe is true or everything that you've said you know what i mean like not even the piece of her soul is allowed to speak out to speak things to her that she doesn't want to acknowledge well and you know what i'm just thinking about that i think makes that even more kind of illuminating is like so so that means that like the you know like sort of given the kind of the framework of how we were talking about um sort of demons and and gender last time that the part of herself that she has silenced is male that's true yeah yeah like the part of her of her mind of her soul of her being that has been deprived of its voice is like that like the monkey is like you know i mean if it assuming it you know works for her the same way it is for everybody else you know like if the where the demon is the opposite gender of you um that like the the sort of quote-unquote masculine you know part of her identity is the part that isn't allowed to speak you know yeah yeah that I think that there's something interesting in that too, in terms of the construction, like you said, of, of how, like, how she has totally leaned into, um, sort of calculated femininity as her weapon. Mm-hmm. Like that is the, that's the, the, you know, and I, and I think that the fact that, you know, 
the magisterium very clearly like she's she's sort of she's it's only woman you know like she's the only woman that we ever see anywhere in that world and the way that she has sort of has gotten there has been sort of like like using you know using feminine weapons sort of to you know kind of play like playing a man's game quote unquote you know Mm -hmm. but like doing it in a way that is very much sort of like you know within the constraints that are sort of imposed upon her. And um, and so I just, I think that's really fascinating if you sort of think about what, like the way that she uses things like, you know, like, like beauty and glamour and, um, and elegance and sort of a calculated maternalness sometimes, like we see her do with the kids, which we can come back to at the end. And um, like all of these sort of, womanly sort of feminine like feminine coded traits that she uses sort of to climb her way up to power she doesn't have a sort of you know an an alternate voice from a different perspective inside her mind that sort of like like nothing is sort of pushing back against exactly like everything everything like she's so single-minded you know like that even even the kind of like conscience or her subconsciousness or whatever like any any dissent you know even even down to like her emotions is like silenced and i think so that's why like it feels it you know like not a coincidence to me that the when she snaps with um lyra is when she loses control of her emotions and it is like such a classic abuser thing to do um, to lose control of your emotions and then blame that, you know, direct that yep. Yep. at your victim, you know, where like, and it's like her anger is like, she has to like disavow and sort of push away her anger to such a degree that she can't admit it, that it exists. And then when she can't, you know, like deny it anymore, she has to externalize it. You know, like not even herself via her demon, right? Like she has to, like, she can't even, she can't even like enact that herself. Like it has to be done through her demon. We sort of get our first glimpses here of the fact that, that her relationship with her demon is different from everybody else's, you know, like, like Lyra, Lyra spots um, immediately the really alarming fact that Mrs. Coulter is the only person that we meet who has the ability to separate from her demon, you know, and that becomes really important to, you know, to the plot later, but like that she, that she can be far away from this creature in a way that is not safe for anybody else. Yeah. Which, you know, just like speaking of that, like deep alienation between. Right. Right. And and her soul basically. (laughs) Yeah, like it, it feels, you know, like I, re- that was a piece that I remembered from, from the books is like that it, it is, it becomes important to the plot that she, like that her, you know, that her demon can, can sort of go off on its own and be apart from her and sort of like, you know, fulfill her bidding out in the world or, you know, in, in ways that other people's can't. But I think that this makes that make, 
more emotional sense as opposed yeah. to just kind mm-hmm. of like this is sort of this is sort of like a quirk of this particular woman that she has this this thing um which i feel like from from the books it's like by this by the time you're this part far in the story that's kind of all you know about it is it's like it's this mysterious thing and liar doesn't yet understand why it is but i feel like it it is it has really i think well realized sort of emotional and psychological roots now because it's like of of course she has you know she's she's so she's so reliant on the part of herself that is herself you know yeah Mm -hmm. that it sort of feels like like the function that her demon serves is basically you know it's interesting it's like does her demon even like her you know like they have this sort of the relationship is really horrifying you know like she's she's abusive to the demon and she kind of treats it like a little monkey slave you know yeah like like all, all it, all it gets to do. It doesn't have a name. Yeah, know? we like don't I, know. Like yeah, there's, it's there's no, there's nothing about about the monkey that gives it agency or personality or a sense of self, even in like a small way. Where like you know, with everyone else's demons, it's like Pan is a part of Lyra, but Pan is also a whole being you know like the mm-hmm. two whole beings who are part of one greater whole but but pan has you know has a, a name and a voice and a personality and you know unlike we talked about last time with the you know with the ritual of the of the egyptians for when the demons settle into their final form you know that part of what that tells us is that demons also kind of grow up the way children grow up you know that you sort mm-hmm. of like try on different personalities and and you know explore things and sort of and then you kind of find yourself and you sort of lock into a final form so like so there is like there's a there's a a way in which demons have kind of personalities and voices and sort of a a a self that is their own that is part of who they're who their person is, who their human is, um, but is also their own. And Mrs. Coulter's demon has none of that, you know, like nothing it does is, is independent of her. It's everything that it does is like it's at, sort of at her command. And yeah. that is not the relationship between Pan and Lyra, you know, like Pan's role often is like, you know, like you're saying is like, is to be the voice that Lyra isn't ready to hear yet, you know, or to, um, or to sort of be the kind of the, um, the subconscious or saying, you know, saying the things that are sort of like living deeply embedded, like sometimes in a, you know, like in a healthy way, their relationship kind of has to be a little bit at odds with each other, you know, mm-hmm. like sometimes Pan's role is to, nudge Lyra into facing things she's not ready to face yet, which means that there are times where they kind of have to be coming at things from opposite perspectives, the way all of us from time to time have sort of warring voices within us. And so I think for Mrs. Coulter, like her demon is so sort of, you know, lives in in terror of her, is an extension of her, is sort of in an almost like its own kind of you know, abusive relationship with her is sort of cowed by like, you know, like the, there's, there's no, um, there's no resistance, you know, there's no yeah. like, Hey, think about it from this perspective. Like there's nothing like it just, it just slinks along and sort of does what she tells it to do. And, and there's, there's something, I think like another, another sort of piece of sort of the, the kind of 
chilling, creepy villain world building of like, you know, who Mrs. Coulter is, you know, is the fact that, you know, by the time she is, you know, by the time we meet her, like she has terrorized and sort of dominated this creature so thoroughly that it just silently obeys everything she asks it to do. And like all of the independent life has gone out of it, you know, yeah. like she's sort of like, she's completely domesticated this creature who and everybody else kind of still has its own degree of like independence and, and self of its own. So I think that's another, like, I think it's just, it was really interesting just sort of like, like the moment where she, where she hits it, but also just sort of all of the, like, you know, she looks at the monkey and it just does what she tells it to do, you know, yeah, like it's spying yeah. for her. Like it, th- there's no, um, there's no sort of back and forth to it. The way we sort of see everybody else pan in particular, but like all the other characters, like there's, it's a relationship, you know, he's like, yeah. Asriel and his tiger the same way. Like the tiger serves to remind him of things that he has forgotten or points out things that, you know, like, like, is a sort of another voice that is sometimes counter to what the human is thinking and doing. And, and Mrs. Coulter has snuffed all of that out completely from her own demon. It's just fascinating and so creepy. <laughs> it is like, it's really, it's, it's, I think, especially in this, you know, watching it versus reading it, I think you can see the kind of that, that dynamic is a little bit like less, it feels like a little less malevolent than in the books and a little bit more, I don't know. I guess she's like, she's, she's, she seemed like an almost supernatural evil in the book, I guess. And in this, she just seems like a very, very, uh, natural evil, you know, like a very human evil. Mm-hmm. Um, well, I think it's, I think it's the abuse dynamics. I think yeah, 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 exactly. I feel like, like her, her demon, she is also in an abusive relationship with that demon. Yes, you know, like yes. She is, she is the, the abuser of the monkey in very similar ways that she is the abuser of Lyra in that what she wants is to create these creatures who sort of obey her without question and do her bidding. And She's trying to, and so, so when she talks about molding Lyra, like, she frames it as, like, I'm going to empower you. Yeah. Like, yeah. Like, I'm going to give you the tools that you need to make your way through the world. And, and Lyra buys that, you know, you Mm -hmm. see her looking in the mirror and she's like, I'm going to, like, you know, like repeating her words back, like, I'm going to wear this dress and find my own power. But that's, but that does not actually what she wants. Like Mrs. Coulter does not want to empower Lyra. She wants to make Lyra dependent on her, you know, worshipful and adoring of her and sort of a junior version of herself who thinks the way she thinks and the parts of Lyra that she hates and is trying the hardest to suppress are like you, you know, like you said, like the, the pieces of her that she clearly has gotten from her father, but are the pieces that Mrs. Coulter can't repress or control. Mm-hmm. And so I think if you sort of look at, you know, the, the relationship between her and her demon as being in some way the kind of relationship that she is working towards wanting with Lyra, where Lyra just obeys without question because she is terrified not to you know and is rewarded when she does Mm -hmm. like it's it's a it's sort of like the you know like if lyra didn't resist if lyra kept kind of going along with it and never 
never found out really like sort of the the depth of Mrs. Coulter's secrets, you know, like it's this is sort of the like this is your future, you know, like this is this is who you'll be to her is sort of just another creature who exists to do what she wants and sort of serve her purposes and has and has had all of their resistance kind of beaten out of them. You know, mm-hmm. it's horrifying. Yeah. And yeah. I think that it's, you know, so so the sense of of just visceral relief when when the penny drops and she finally figures out, you know, like the like the general ablation board stuff, you know, when you figure out like what Mrs. Coulter is doing and what that means and where the word gobblers came from and that like all along, you know, it's it's not just that she's been trying to find Roger kind of half-assedly and that's why she hasn't succeeded. It's that the entire thing was like the worst and most horrifying kind of lie, you know, like, and then that finally spurs her to like, you know, like grab the alethiometer and get the fuck out of there. You know, it, it is like, even though she ends up, you know, back like out on the streets again and you're sort of like, what the hell is going to happen to this kid? Like still just being like, okay, but she's out of that cage. Mm-hmm. You know, it gives you this sort of huge, like, <sighs> because it really does feel like that's, you know, like where it's headed is she's trying to create another sort of dependent creature who will just fulfill her every sort of, whim without questioning or pushing back and the thought of you know turning lyra into sort of a mind-controlled little zombie child is just like horrifying like yeah, yeah. be the be the butthead that that we love <laughs> <laughs> yeah exactly yeah to like to try to like douse that sort of like that flame that that lyra has that sort of like drive and um and like also just you know the sort of the the way that she like so cruelly exploits and then dismisses, you know, how deeply Lyra cares for Roger, you know, and like really, really like loves Roger was like sort of chilling to watch too. So speaking of um, Roger, we can talk a little bit about like the Egyptians um, this uh, episode. Um, and um it warmed the cockles of my heart that we got like a few sort of like a nice bonding moments between Billy and Roger. Yes. Oh my God. I know. Oh my God. <laughs> that was, that meant so much to me. I was just like, okay, first of all, they're both, they are two of the most angelically precious and adorable child actors. Who they really are. <laughs> the dawn of time. And I'm frequently skeptical of child actors, but like, oh man, these two, they were so precious. Well, maybe we could, we could talk a little bit about the, the, the general ablation board, the sort of, thing Oh yeah. yeah. You mm-hmm. learn about the, the kid stuff, that sort of connection. Mm-hmm. Um, because I, I, one of, one of my favorite moments, you know, sort of speaking of children rebelling against Mrs. Coulter is is Roger, you know, when she comes to visit the kids, you know, so it's sort of that that really cool kind of editing back and forth of us, the audience, and Lyra simultaneously, you know, kind of beginning to put the pieces together, you know, that we yeah. that we see like we we find out concretely before Lyra does, but it's sort of, you know, the back and forth of her snooping in the study with Mrs. Coulter going to visit the kids. 
and Roger doing what he can with the weapons that are available to him to try to kind of, you know, throw her off a little bit by like dictating his letter to Lyra, you know, mm-hmm. like, like, no, like wanting to sort of see like, you know, like, cause he, cause he knows who she is, you know, and, mm-hmm. and he, he doesn't know that Lyra has necessarily, you know, come is in London now, but he knows that like, this is an, a knife that he can twist a little bit. And you see that like, it does, when she throws the letters in the fire, that it's like his letter is the one that she's watching burn up. Like it does, he succeeds in rattling her, which also feels like, a, you know, like she, and she swallows it back down and puts the mask back on. But like for a minute that got to her when she realizes like, this is Roger, you know, this is the, this is the kid. And that he is still as connected to Lyra as Lyra feels to him, you know, like that she has not succeeded in severing that connection just because she separated them. Um, And that's one of the pieces where I feel like the, where the gaslighting was so, you know, again, I mean, just fantastic illustration of how abuse dynamics work. The isolation of Lyra from everybody else in her life who isn't Mrs. Coulter is both, you know, physical because the elevator is locked. And it's also, you know, her sort of casually mentioning as they're having breakfast on their beautiful terrace, you know, he probably didn't leave Oxford. He's probably moved on. He's forgotten all about you. you yeah. Know, like that's Rogers in the past, you know, like, like trying to make Lyra feel a little bit abandoned and forgotten by Roger so that she will feel more dependent on Mrs. Coulter, who will, who is sort of, more and more the only person that she has, you know, like that was, it was so, it was so evil. And also just like, again, such a perfect little illustration of this is the way that it works. Like the violence is not all physical, you know, like Mm -hmm. the, the, the way that she is sort of piece by piece trying to cut Lyra off from any, person in her life any voice in her head any potential anybody who isn't mrs coulter you know disillusioning her about um lord asriel is one piece of it but also you know like she tries it again with roger and and that's you know and that being one of the things that really sort of triggers a really strong reaction from pan you know the, the part of lyra that is pan knows like roger would never do that that would never ever happen like he would never go back and just sort of forget about her and move on without being in contact with her and so i think that that coming in this sort of in the same ex- episode kind of juxtaposed with the realization that like roger is still holding on to hope of her you know like he's he believes and you know telling billy like lyra's gonna find us lyra will rescue us like she will not stop looking you know like it's so sweet and beautiful just that that like that reminder that the connection between the two of them is so strong that you know there's nothing that mrs coulter can do like it's very inconvenient to her there's nothing she can do or say that will convince lyra you know just let go of roger just give up just move on you know um, yeah. And it's also very telling, I think, of who she is, that she doesn't recognize Roger as Roger until he says his name. He was right there, you know, pouring her water glass at the dinner party yeah. at the college. And, and he didn't, you know, and he did not even register for her at all. And so that's sort of, you know, like that he's, that's how little importance he has to her as a human being. You know, like he's literally just another kid. You know? Yeah, exactly. Um, and yeah. That was also very sort of creepy too. Like he's not even a person to her. 
Yeah. And I think it's also, you know, sort of that the way that she kind of like goes in and, and that is like that, that, that part is in the first book, but um, where she goes in and, and like has these children write letters to their parents, like as a tool of man- emotional and manipulation. So like on that end to keep them quiet, she's sort of telling them like, yeah, you could, let, you could write a letter. Don't worry. You know, like, just because you're like, you're here and, and we're moving you doesn't mean that we're cutting you off from your family. So like kind of using, like creating the illusion of, of relationships, continued relationships that don't exist anymore as a tool of emotional manipulation, while then turning around and doing the opposite with Lyra, you know, and sort of like trying to like sever the emotional connection, the way that she's severed them, you know, sort of like physically from each other to try to control her. And, you know, it's interesting, like, as you're talking about like that sort of like, like her kind of like strategically recognizing like, okay, like in order to like really get control over Lyra, over this, this girl, you know, in the way that she wants, like what I have to do is like cut off like all connection that she has to this boy. Like, you know, like I, I can't, I sort of can't help, but like my mind can't help, but put together that like metaphorical severing of ties you know, the introduction in this episode, which actually moves it up, like from the, I think this is like that reveal, the, the, the reveal of what her plans are in the book happens much, much, much later. And so to move. Yeah, that's what parallel, I thought. Yeah. You know, so like you have the, the metaphorical sort of severing and, and then, you know, like at the same time, you can kind of like see that happening. Um, we get to see like the, the schematics of the like the like guillotine to sever children from their demons. I thought, you know, like, you know, as another form of sort of like the way that this episode of sort of like really developing on a bunch of different levels in a bunch of different ways, like basically like child abuse, you know, particularly like emotional child abuse um, and sort of exploitation of children, you know, the way that 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 plan that the sort of, you know, the 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 facility they're building in the north to cut children off from their demons, like. I think, I think placing it in this episode with all these other events, you know, before we know the motives, like we don't, you know, they haven't yet in the show kind of explained, like, here's why the Magisterium wants to do this. You know, like there's all this, like, sort of very specific details, stuff having to do with dust and blah, blah, blah. But I think like what putting it here, like kind of creates a thematic resonance to what eventually will be the sort of plot development of that plan that I think is really, really fascinating. The idea that, when it's sort of, you know, revealed to us, like the, the general ablation board, you know, the kidnap- kidnapping of children, like what, what Adele, which she sort of reveals to, you know, to Lyra is, it's not just that Mrs. Coulter is involved in, you know, the kidnapping of children, but like this is entirely her own project. This is, you know, it's her invention. And I think that what we've seen, you know, both in this episode and, um, and the previous one, like, you know, like we were just saying about her relationship with her own demon, it makes sense why that sort of sense of, like, why that separation between person and demon, like, sort of cr- like creating, you know, a, um, a sort of a version of the human species that is just the person and not the demon, like, why that would be of interest to her, you know, yeah. like, like that, you know, the sort of a, a permanent, definitive silencing of 
of those sort of inner voices. You know, I think that like she's she's already for herself kind of gone as far as she can within her own limits to sort of create that sense of separation between herself and her own demon. You know, it's like it's sort of it it gives us some interesting context of like like why somebody like Mrs. Coulter would think that it would be a virtue, would think that it would be helpful, you know, better for the human race to figure out if there's a way to separate people and their demons from each other. It tracks with the fact that, you know, like she she doesn't think that there's anything to be gained from hearing alternate perspectives on anything from mm-hmm, within mm-hmm. her own mind or from anybody else. Or even if you think about sort of like demons, like the, the settling of a demon and, and the way that like sort of adults attracting dust even that first episode is sort of like aligned with you, like children don't attract adults do that. And the, the sort of like innocence, you know, like you, the moment you become an adult and you lose your innocence is when you, so the way that sort of dust and demons are connected in the kind of magisterium mind with like original sin, you know, that, that, that the way that then a demon could be kind of like a manifestation of something that is your shame. You know what I mean? Like you can also kind of see like that playing out in her, her sort of, um, uh, alienation from her own demons but yeah it's just like it's really interesting we should probably talk about uh boreal yes uh that was like the like definitely the biggest change from the book so far is introducing the sort of portals between worlds this early because like that doesn't you know that's not a piece of the plot until the second book as I recall, but I, I think it seems like it was a, it was a smart decision on kind of like a story pacing level for, for a series. Mm-hmm. Yeah. When it was first, like when he first like walked through the portal, I had this moment sort of like, wait, what that happens. And I was like, wait, did that happen yeah. in the books? And then I was like, well, no, it didn't. And I, you know, so I had a kind of moment of startlement, but I think as it went on, I think, I, I think I like that sort of choice for the way, um, as a sort of like pacing choice. Um, because, because even though, you know, I think they're going to, there's going to be like multiple seasons of this, right? So they're going to like cover the entire series over the course. It's not just this first set of episodes. Is that right? Or is it? Um, no, yeah, they, they are, they are doing, they're doing the whole trilogy. They've already filmed all of the second season already because Daphne Keene is so young. They do want to like, and, and there is, there is no time gap between books two and book three. So they didn't want to like run into that problem that you have with child actors where they like, you know, grow four inches and you suddenly pretend like they look exactly the same. So the Walt, so the Walt of, problem from uh, Lost. Yep, yep, exactly. <laughs> yep. Um, go, oh shit, puberty. <laughs> yep. <laughs> like, well, all right. So yeah, so they so they shot all, basically all of the first and second seasons like straight back to back. Because I remember seeing like Lin Manuel Miranda on Twitter, like they just wrapped season two, like yeah. I think a week or two ago. Yeah. Um, so and and they are and they already have an order for the third season. So so as far as I understand it, they are making a at least three season TV show. But it does seem like I think something that we probably can expect both from the fact that they sort of looped in at the beginning of the last episode some stuff from the Book of Dust mm-hmm. and this episode now taking us into some stuff that doesn't come up until until the second book that it's not it's not going to be a literal like season 1 is book 1 season 2 is book 2 like that yeah. they're they're kind of laying out some pieces of the world building 
concurrently as opposed to like, you know, introducing in book two, by the way, hey, our world exists in the universe of this book, you know, side by side with it. So I think that there, and there, there is, I think, um, you know, like, because like that being a reveal that comes much later, like you said, like, I think as a, in terms of a TV writing pacing thing, like this allows us to have kind of multiple storylines happening and building towards a conclusion at the same time. And mm-hmm. one of the things that I think that it does in this one that I think is helpful sort of like in terms of accelerating a little bit, some of the, the big kind of plot reveals, we now know, which is sort of hinted at in the pilot, but it's sort of revealed here for sure, that Asriel's discovery of dust and other universes isn't just dangerous because it's heresy and because the Magisterium needs people to sort of believe that's not true. The Magisterium not only already knows about that, but is sort of strategically using it for their own purposes. Mm -hmm. It isn't that Asriel has discovered something like, like, like we're talking about last time with Galileo, you know, that he's made a discovery which sort of shakes the magisterium's belief system down to its foundations and which, if it got out, would challenge the theology that they've built. It's bigger than that because it's actually something that they know and are attempting to figure out ways to control. Mm-hmm. And that's part of why it has to be secret. You know, like, like Boreal has this whole sort of, you know, back and forth sort of dual existence where he has contacts on the other side is clearly laying the groundwork for a plan of some kind of how to sort of, you know, leverage this. And and we also get the reveal that there are more than one, you know, like there are other sort of pockets through which people can travel. Um, one of them, you know, being in the North and that, that that's where the Grumman found his way through. You yeah. Know, like that, like the fact that the head isn't his was yeah. that I had totally forgotten. And that was a huge, like, whoa. <laughs> moment, right. You know? Yeah. Yeah. Do you think that Azriel knows that? Um, I honestly, I don't remember. Uh, mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah. I couldn't either. I can't remember. And, and I will be delighted to be surprised when I get there in the show and find out. Yep, yep. Um, I genuinely don't remember, but, um, but yeah, no, I agree. I think, um, you know, because I was thinking about this because because it is such a huge change. And so, like, there's that moment of kind of, like, readjusting your expectations. But I, I do think I agree that it, I think it was a good a good choice, given the kind of, like, pacing differences between TV series and novels, you know, in that, like, the first both the first novel, I think, in this series and then also the the sort of this trilogy overall and, and and this is, I think, just like, again, we sort of talked about last time, like some things about adaptation come down to different artistic forms or different sort of forms of storytelling. They just function differently. They do things the way that you tell a story visually and the way that you tell a story in writing are are like fundamentally different and they have different they have different sort of demands and needs and they have different sort of affordances. Um, but then also the other, of course, the other issue is that, you know, your audience expects different, particularly when it comes to storytelling, they expect different, a pa- different pacing of beats, you know? So like in novels, the, the, the novels I think are, are plotted in a little bit more 
not a leisurely pace because it's not to say that it's just kind of like me, you know, like not that there is an intensity, but they're, they're, uh, in a, in a more measured pace, you know, you know, so like, so the story develops more slowly over the course of the first book and then also the books overall, you know, it sort of like unfolds bits, it kind of unfolds piece by piece, um, without kind of like making a big reveal early and then kind of like, um, explaining it later, like the way that like we sort of like the, the, the reveal about what Mrs. Coulter's plans are come much, much later in the story after a whole bunch of other breadcrumbs are kind of dropped rather than coming early. And then sort of like, you know, that's the plan, but then now the question is why. And I think that's something that, that tends to work better in novels than in TV shows. And I think that's like mostly comes down to, or like, at least in a large part, it comes down to audience expectation, you know, whereas like when you're watching, it's particularly when you're watching TV, like week to week, right? There's that sort of pressure where each individual episode needs to have a self-contained story, a beginning and an end, middle end with stakes, with arc, you know, um, in a way that like, say, a chapter of a novel doesn't have to have that. And then also there's the kind of like the, the pacing in terms of momentum of story, like, you know, the, in order to keep audience interest from week to week sustained over 10 hours of TV, again, I think requires you to like the, the sort of like pace of major story developments has to happen a little bit more frequently and earlier a lot of the time in, in episodic TV than in novels. And so you know, so sort of thinking about like, okay, like what's the overall trajectory of the story? Like what ultimately, if you're thinking about the trilogy as one complete story, you know, which I think it seems like very clear that they are in this adaptation, what are the stakes of that full story? Um, and so, you know, in sort of like in, in adapting it for the screen, I, it, it, you know, I think it does make sense to kind of take like, well, one of the ultimate stakes has to do with people moving from world to world, the fact that that's possible, the implications of it. So to kind of like get that up earlier in the story, so you can start sort of like unfolding chunks of that, even just for exposition purposes, you know, so you don't wind up in a thing where it's like season two starts and they have to be like plunk, exp- exposition dump about like. Uh, I I think it does make sense. So like, I sort of, I was like a little bit startled by that, but I think I've sort of come around to seeing like, okay, like if we're just thinking about like, sort of like the needs of this form of storytelling versus like novelistic storytelling, I think it does make kind of like move up some of these reveals um, and pace them out a little bit, a little bit differently. Yes, no, I totally agree. And I, I think one of the because I think one of the things that it does in terms of sort of moving the chess pieces around, I think one thing that works about it is it's in the pilot, you know, the, the first the first really big piece of sort of earth shattering information that we learn about this universe is the way that Azriel sort of presents his discovery to the college of there being these other worlds and that, you know, dust is part of how you can see them. Like, like it's sort of watching the way that sort of shakes all of these, you know, all the sort of learned scholars, like down to their foundation, like, like that, that idea is so sort of shocking to them. And, and that they, you know, they give Azrael the research money to go sort of explore that further. And so, and so now, you know, we learn, you know, the very next episode is like the Magisterium already knows and is on it and kind of has their own agenda. And so I think what it, what it lays out, I think really neatly is like, okay, so we have all of these different characters or groups of characters who are sort of, you know, moving, like it sort of lays out like, what are the different 
threads kind of running towards a point of convergence. You know, like mm-hmm. we're already yeah. getting the sense like 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 even if you knew nothing about the books or the the trilogy, you know, as as a whole and where it goes, you're sort of already getting the sense that like okay, we're lining up a bunch of different groups of people who are probably going to converge at some point in the north where there is obviously another kind of world transporting portal. Mm-hmm. The kids are going there. Lord Asriel is already on his way there. The Magisterium, you know, has people headed. It's like all of these sort of, I think it, it, it gives you a sense of forward momentum toward, like at some point, all of these groups of people are going to sort of converge and there'll be a big sort of final showdown, mm-hmm. you know, and, um, and so I think that I think that is a piece of television storytelling that is different in a in a book where you can kind of where you can live in a little bit more sort of depth in like we're sort of just we're just sort of be in this slice of it for a while and like it's like in a yeah. TV show you know like it has to sort of have some kind of propulsion you know so I think mm-hmm. that we feel like already two episodes in we're like okay this is the big like. This is this is this is the big sort of explosive where the cliffhanger is probably going to come is something to do with the fact that this travel between two worlds exists and that somewhere in the north, you know, Grumman found a way through the, like a, a passage that the Magisterium doesn't know about yet. And, yeah, um, yeah. And, and that that is, you know, and that sort of, and then, and there's sort of the north of this part of being the kind of like mythical. And then that's why I think like the, the title I think is so interesting. You know, like the title is like the, the idea of north. Yeah. Um, I thought was really fascinating because it's this mythical, you know, like it's, it's the thing that Lyra wants most in the whole world. You know, it's the place that she wants to go, that she fantasizes about, that she had maps pinned up on her wall back at the college. You know, like it's sort of her idealized kind of like shorthand for like all the adventures that she wants to be having. And it's also this sort of in the same kind of mythical way sort of presented to the kidnapped children, like, you're going to get to go to the North. Like, isn't that the most exciting, you know, like, like as, yeah, like trying to sort of play on their idea of it. Like, like we, we know that they're actually not going on a fun adventure, you know, that both Mrs. Coulter and the creepy nun, like, that's how it's sort of presented to them is like, isn't this exciting children? We're going to go on and explore to the North, this magical, wonderful place that you've all heard of. Aren't you like that? That's that the idea of North is a weapon or, or I guess more like like a tool um, that they're attempting to use to sort of control and manipulate children, both the kidnapped kids and Lyra because of this sort of fantasy picture that they have of it, where, like the reality of North sort of juxtaposed with the idea of North is not that at all, you know? Yeah. Like, you know, you sort of know if you, if you've read the books that like what they find when they get there is not going to be the sort of magical snow covered, you know, fairy tale, but you know, there's sort of, there are these two, there's the reality of what is there and there's this sort of um, kind of fantastical portrait of the, of it that 
is a tool that can be leveraged, particularly with children, you know, but, but that, that everyone's sort of picture of what it looks like is, is not correct. You know, so I think that there is in a lot of different ways, there are sort of all of these layers between like what really is up there versus the way everyone talks about what's up there, you know, and I think the Arctic Institute too, we don't spend a lot of time there, but like, you know, they're, you know, sort of in their own way, kind of how they're introduced to us as out of touch with that reality as the college is, you know, like they've got like the, you know, like a sort of a museum, you know, and Lyra's just like bouncing around. Just that scene was so funny where she's like, oh my God, it's a polar bear head. Oh my God, it's a this time. Oh my God, it's that guy. Like she's just so, she's so wired, you know, she's like a kid on Christmas. She's like running around, like looking at everything. But like the, the way the Arctic Institute presents what North is, is also sort of, you know, curated like there it's mm-hmm. a it's sort of a it's it's its own like idea of north you know and um and there's nothing there about you know travel between worlds or dust or anything like that like that is sort of removed from how they depict it and you know so i think there's just all these sort of like everyone's perceptions of or sort of interpretation of what north is contrasted with the reality of the sort of grim and terrifying and unromantic, you know, things that they're going to encounter when they all get there. So I think that that was just sort of, that was very interesting. And that the title, like, like it's not North, it's the idea of North. Yeah. It's the myth of North. Yeah. And I think like, it also is kind of interesting, you know, like another sort of layer of that is I love how much of the sort of like drama um, and plot of, of this episode in particular, but like, I think even, you know, the first two episodes overall is driven by these sort of like this, like deep dramatic irony, uh, 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 sort of swirling around, like who knows what and who doesn't know that other people know what, you know what I mean? So it's like, it's sort of driven by like, like first is sort of like Asriel comes to, you know, Jordan college and is like, sort of like presents them with information that like is sort of like reacted to as though it's all completely new, but then we slowly find, you know, find out like the masters, like they kind of know this, a lot of this already, but they don't want to know. They're supposed to know it. They're trying not to know it, you know? And then, and it's presented in this way where it's supposed to be like earth shattering, right? Like these are discoveries. Nobody knew this thing. And then this time, like one of the big reveals, well, it turns out, magisterium knows about other worlds they've gone there you know so there's this kind of like levels of like what is actually unknown and what is just supposed to be unknown what is you know what don't people know and what do they want you to believe they don't know you know and that drives all of the the sort of like drama between lyra and mrs coulter of course you know because mrs coulter is trying to convince her that she doesn't know where Roger is, but she does, you know, she's trying to convince Lyra that she knows certain things and doesn't know certain things. And, and Lyra, same thing, you know, like she's trying to make Mrs. Coulter believe that she doesn't know information that she does in fact know, um, you know, the way that the, um, uh, Adele, which is the name of the, um, the, the reporter, right. The journalist, you know, so like yeah, yeah. her, you sort of find out like, like as far as Lyra's concerned, you know, the gobblers are sort of like, First, they were just kind of like this myth, you know, they're just kind of this like, you know, like, like legend conspiracy theory thing. And then she believes that they're real, but like she thinks that they're just sort of like some like 
nebulous bad guys, you know, like having nothing to do with any of the other stuff that she's experienced. And then suddenly the penny drops and here's Adele being like, no, like we know who they are. GOB stands for General Oblation Board, you know, like, and I'm here to tell you that like there's, there's sort of like plans afoot that people like there's a lot more known about this situation than you have been led to believe and that you know like that miss coulter knows a lot more than you love to believe so i I think it's just like really interesting so much of this is driven by people's idea of the north and what it represents and what's there you know and, and sort of like who gets there first and who can control what but then also like it's very much like you know like all of this drama is ultimately about ideas you know it's about people fighting to expose ideas, to expose information and other people fighting to, to sort of like obscure or suppress ideas and information, you know, and like all this sort of like fight and what like what physical fighting exists. It's all about ideas and information, which I think is, you know, is one of the things that I like love about this series. I do. And this reminds me, one of the things that I that I think is is um, worth mentioning sort of speaking of, you know, of this topic, for those who do not know, I think just sort of, I think it is, it is worth potentially taking a second to talk a little bit about what the word oblation means. Um, yeah. You know, I think because I think, because that also feels really, you know, feels significant too, as sort of a really chilling kind of foreshadowing, you know, kind of code for like what, you know, what the what the sort of bigger purpose of this project is you know like what we so so the word oblation basically means like a um it's a sort of a sacrifice to god you know it's a um a sort of a, a a gift that is you know something that's like laid out the altar or you know sort of a, a way of um sort of of you know giving like giving a gift to the gods it's it's traditional it's more use in like a christian context mm-hmm. than like a sort of ancient god sacrifice context so it's it's something that i like i think it's like a very like catholic word you know and an oblate is somebody who like if you're if you're sort of a like a, a benedictine oblate for example it means that you sort of have have chosen in your life to live by the tenets and the teachings and the practices of the Benedictines without actually formally becoming a monk or a nun. So it's sort of mm-hmm. a, a person who is attached to a particular religious order or a kind of religious way of life in their own life. So, you know, so you can, for example, like you, you know, you can't be married and be a monk, but you can be married and be a Benedictine oblet, you know, it's like a lay person. Mm-hmm. Um, and and so I think that sort of both of the sort of meanings of that word, I think, sort of play into, you know, kind of what we learn here. So we sort of get this sort of picture of, you know, from from the kind of blueprints and schematics that Lyra sees, you know, she sort of discovers like, okay, so the purpose of, you know, what she figures out is like the purpose of the general ablation board is something to do with a machine that separates people from demons and then she learns that the general oblation board and the gobblers are the same entity and that mrs coulter essentially is that entity that it, you know it is it's not even a board it's just her sort of code yeah for her you know? yeah and that thus all of these kids being kidnapped are you know part of are sort of connected to what's going to happen with this machine so she, she has kind of so all of those are sort of the pieces that we 
that we have, you know, and, and I think what using the word oblation means, you know, using the sort of terminology that's applied to sacrifices offered to God is sort of like, that's kind of our indication that beyond just sort of, is it possible to sacrifice? to sort of separate a person from their demon? Can we build a machine that works? And can we sort of use these kids as human trials to sort of see if we can make this scientific discovery? That's our tell that there is a moral and theological basis to the why of why Mrs. Coulter is doing this, you know, yeah. like that there is that, that the children are in some sense, like they're not, they're not just science lab guinea pigs, you know, yeah. there is a reason why it's the magisterium specifically that is doing this, you know? And so, and, and that is, you know, which is, which is chilling because that's not a reveal that has been made to us yet. So then, you know, it kind of like recast the way that you see her re, re that, that she's, you know, willing to like literally like take these children and like sacrifice them as an act of some kind of twisted piety somehow makes it that makes it even more, <laughs> even more like it's fucked up if that's possible. <laughs> yeah. Well, cause it, cause it gives it, it's sort of, that's what brings in the fanaticism, right? You know, like, yeah, the, yeah, yeah. What we see of her relationship with the magisterium up to this point is sort of very much like they have their goals and purposes and she has her own goals and purposes and that they are sort of mutually using each other, you know, in, in some ways, you know, the magisterium gets benefit from her work and her work and she gets benefit from sort of using the magisterium and, um, but it's sort of clear sighted about it and not their kind of like, you know, like she's not their puppet by any means, but in terms of like, her actual theology, her religious beliefs, like like what of the tenets of the magisterium she deep down believes and professes, like we haven't seen any of that yet, really, you know? And yeah. so I think the fact that the fact that this is sort of how it's framed at least to, you know, sort of why the magisterium is backing it, you know, what they see of the purpose of these children. It, it sort of, it gives a little flicker of like, is she in her own way, you know, also a religious zealot? Is that going to become yeah. part of it that sort of plays into this later? And, and that's sort of our first kind of whisper of that possibility. And that makes her sort of even more terrifying because it's another, you know, it's another sort of way that people can be blind to or sort of like willfully blind to the impact of their choices on other human beings. You know, it's yeah. another way that the ends justify the means and it doesn't matter who you hurt and that, you know, individuals on their own are disposable. You know, Roger existing to her only as a weapon to use against Lyra, like a thing to sort of take away from her and make Lyra feel more isolated. Um, and as a sort of, you know, sacrifice on God's altar that will help serve some purpose that is still sort of a little bit murky, but not a human being on his own, you know, like not a person mm -hmm. that she noticed when he was filling her glass with water standing right next to her. Mm -hmm. You know, like I think it's sort mm -hmm. of a, um, it's sort of just like an, it's like another little slice of the ways in which she just does not see human beings as having intrinsic human value apart from what they sort of do for her except for Lyra sometimes well yeah but I was gonna say even with Lyra you know I think the fact that like 
Lyra is not a factor or important in her life in any way. Like, like Lord Asriel visits her, you know, like he pretends he's her uncle, but he visits her, you know, and, and Lyra is, is irrelevant to Mrs. Coulter until she becomes useful to her. So, so I think, it, I think it does that, that pattern extends even to Lyra. And I think those moments you see, like, like, I don't, you know, again, like, I think it's like when she has Lyra, then some of those maternal feelings kind of bubble up in her, but it seems pretty apparent that they're like kind of an unwelcome surprise, <laughs> you know? Yeah. Yeah. That's they true. were not, yeah. they're not, they were not a factor in what motivated her to go to Jordan college and convince Lyra to come. Like I, she didn't even decide, right? I, it was the master who basically extended the invitation, you know? So like, so, so it wasn't like she was like, I want my daughter back, you know, and this is how I'm going to get her. It was like, okay, like I'm going to take this child because, you know, like it's strategically useful for me to do so at this time. And then she has, and then I think like there's those occasional like, oh fuck, like maybe I love my daughter, <laughs> you know, it's like, <laughs> yeah. you know, so, so I think it like, it's, it's still even true of Lyra. Um, That's true. Yeah. Convenient moments when like, you know, and it's a little bit like her anger where it's sort of like emotions that she did not choose and cannot control bubble up. And that's very troubling to her. Like loving her daughter is a bug in the system as far as she's concerned, I think. Yeah. Yeah. No, <laughs> I think that's true. Yeah. Which is, um, which is just so chilling. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Uh, so, yeah. And especially, you know, I think that there's that, there's the, also that sort of like juxtaposition of the way that she sees or doesn't see, you know, the children as children, like Roger and Billy and the other children as children. And even in many, many ways does not see Lyra as a child, you know, like it, most of the time, you know, she, she doesn't really... Like she does, but, but sort of only reluctantly, um, you know, the way that that is sort of juxtaposed and contrasted with the Egyptians and the fact that this is an entire community that will like drop everything they, they're doing their entire lives and band together collectively out of like love and commitment to these children, um, just because they're their children you know and they love them not for like there's like zero strategic you know what I mean it's like so like you need this to do that you know but just out of sheer sort of like love for the children and then sort of like community attachment you know sort of recognizing that like yeah and this is something that is like that is like these children are a part of us and and the loss of them is a loss of a piece of us and is harming us you know like that an entire community sort of organized around protecting and rescuing these these most vulnerable of their community the sort of sort of like the juxtaposition of the egyptians and their response to the situation and the magisterium and they're just like absolute like cold indifference you know like they like like when the when the priest guy whose name i'm forgetting is is sent by the cardinal i think it's the bishop is sent by the cardinal um you know to tell mrs coulter that like like basically like we might take your project away. Like that, you know, I think it's, it's like obviously important that the, that the reason they're sending that message is not like you're kidnapping children and that's wrong. It's like, this is like getting too close to the surface. Like there's too much of a danger that like some of this might get out and, um, you know, and like, and we can't have that. Like you're too far. Yeah, like it's messy. 
it's yeah. messy, you know, like it's a little bit, meh, you know, but it's not sort of like we are morally like we just found out that to do this project, you're kidnapping children. Like they knew all along. They just now just the sort of calculus of like harming children versus what we get out of it is now tilting like the other way. So like you better not right, look right. bad. Um, so, so, you know, just the kind of like the contrast of those two social forces um i think is really uh interesting and 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 obviously is like another huge chunk of what's like driving the plot it's actually that um reminded me of sort of something else that i that i you know thought maybe we should touch on a little bit too is that we we did we got a little we got a little bit more of a picture in this episode building on some of the stuff from the previous episode of the kind of internal politics within the magisterium yeah you know we got we sort of got to know a little bit more about sort of their own kind of their inner dynamics and sort of power hierarchy and something i thought was really interesting with the cardinal and like the the um (laughs) his demon being like a wasp yeah like a sort of big gross flying stingy insect like that felt very yeah like the the magisterium's demons often presenting as sort of uh, creepy horrific creatures you know like like boreal and the snake was fantastic Mm -hmm. i mean the Mm -hmm. the serpent sort of slithering through the human skull and poking the eyeball you're like okay (laughs) this is like fantastic like you're like like he's a bad guy but also Uh like like sort of the visceral horror of that yeah and then the Um, the bishop the bishop um i think his his demon is like a little lizard you know it's like nobody has they're all right like nobody has like a blooded mammal uh for a (laughs) yeah yeah they're all they're all reptiles and insects yeah sort of a like you know like okay so this is this is a very tidy little way that philip pullman is conveying how he feels about religion (laughs) but it um but it does a lot of character work very effectively you know like i think if you're if you're looking at demon as manifestation of a piece of that person's soul and identity um just knowing what form that demon settled as when Mm -hmm. that person became an adult does a lot of work you know in sort of like revealing the depths of people's inner selves you know Mm -hmm. like there's like a person who who is a priest in the magisterium having a you know having a demon that settles you know when he is a you know adolescent boy as you know as a snake you know as like as a female snake you know all of the sort of imagery and metaphor that that kind of conveys you know the sort of this white female serpent you know that's boreal so that that tells us a lot about the innate sort of borealness of him and like who who he is sort of at his deepest core you know and Mm -hmm. the same with like the sort of gross slimy cardinal with this like buzzing insect but with mrs coulter you know it's like you know, hers is a is a monkey, and there's sort of an implicit kind of warmth and wildness to that that she has completely. So, like, like her demon, like she herself has transformed her demon into what it is. You mm-hmm. know, the picture of who she might have been as a teenager when her demon settled into that form 
that there was at that time something vibrant and alive and yeah. warm-blooded and yeah. beautiful and and exotic and you know, and very and, social and from, you know like monkeys are very very, yeah, very social communal, yeah yeah mm-hmm. yeah and maternal too yeah you know? yeah yeah um and and that all, that all of those things sort of existed as like unrealized potential within who she was and she through like calculated deliberate intentional choice beat that animal into submission and turned mm-hmm. it into this sort of mute nameless you know kind of like monkey butler you know <laughs> no self of its own you know so i think it's just it's interesting sort of if you look at if you if you if you sort of accept as part of the world building that like the form somebody's demon is in when they're an adult is reflective of something that was true on a really deep personal level of who they were when they were a teenager, you know, like who they were as an adolescent when that change happened, you know, there are people who, so like, so Lord Boreal was, was always, snaky you know in some Mm -hmm. way like like even when he was young and mrs coulter was not always a tyrant who lived so cut off from everything else in humanity you know like those changes were that was something that was done to her demon by her and not like a sort of innate piece of who she like her demon her demon probably didn't settle as a nameless being that doesn't speak you know, mm-hmm, she mm-hmm. made it that. Whereas, mm-hmm. like, you know, Boreal snake became a snake sort of of its own. You know, so I think it's just like there's there's so much sort of in the kind of the um the philosophy of how demons work that is revealed to us by, you know, by sort of the more of them that we see, the more you can kind of put those pieces together, which I think was really interesting. Yeah, no, I totally agree. I think that's really, really fascinating. All right. Um I think that just about covers it for this episode. Oh, I do want to say one other thing. Speaking of the of the Egyptians um, that I mentioned, is like I was really delighted that there was like a little teeny tiny bit of like maybe a romance between the Egyptian leader guy and and Mom Costa when they mm. had that little like little sort of like hand holding moment mm-hmm. and sort of and and that the other guy sort of did the like the like the the sort of let's give them a moment alone kind of head nod to tony yeah sort of like is there you know like is there like you know like my, my sort of super heart was like is there backstory here? <laughs> is he billy's dad you know like, claire you like literally being- you literally found the parents to ship I did. Well, I mean, it's like, I changed, you are I, so on brand. <laughs> I am so on brand. Well, because, yeah, because I was like, like there was, oh my gosh, there was so, there was so much to ship in this episode. Because first of all, <laughs> you're like, you're like, okay. So like, this is our first real picture of like the angsty, you know, Mrs. Coulter, Lord Azrael backstory. But mm-hmm. also you can't tell me there was not something going on between Mrs. Coulter and Lord Boreal. Like there was oh, like, yeah. oh, there's some, oh, yeah. there's some heat there too, you know. Um, there's some history like, there. Like, Mm-hmm. Yeah. I at least hate down. sex, right? Like at least hate sex. Oh yeah, for sure, for sure, for sure. Yeah. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. Um that was like that was like a steamy little fight that they had. Oh um, yes. And then also, and then the Egyptians, and I was like, and this is one, this is one that we can root for because it's like sweet <laughs> and like maybe like a family. Yeah. So I was very, I was like, okay, I'm super excited that I'm being given so many options. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, you get your sort of like sexy, mm-hmm. like hate fucking, like bad guy ship. 
Yeah, like exactly. Angsty, you know, like couple with the past, you know, sort of like star cars went in opposite directions ship. And then you get your like, you're like sort of like, yes, I can root for these people just to be happy together and love each other ship. Exactly. And all, yeah. They're all the parents. Exactly. All the parents. I love it. I love it. Yeah. So I was, yeah. So I was extremely pleased. I was like, I am being fed. And we haven't even gotten to Lin-Manuel Miranda and the witch yet. So I was just I like, know. I'm ready. Oh my God. Yeah. I forgot about Lin-Manuel. Oh my God. I forgot about, I forgot about I that. Oh, yeah. Oh, so exciting. The show is already so good and we haven't even seen Lin-Manuel Miranda yet. Right. Which was the thing that I was the most excited for. And yeah. And I already like, and I love it so much I sometimes forget that he's in it, you know. Also the bears. So, yeah. Like I love Yorick. And the bear. Oh my gosh. Yes. Like we haven't even, like as far as I could, we haven't even gotten to my like favorite characters mm-hmm. and parts of mm-hmm. this world and it's already amazing. It's already so good. Yes. And it's just, and it's giving us so much to dig into. Yeah, I know. I love it. Um, okay, so uh, we'll be back next week to cover episode three, the title of which, again, I do not know. Uh, I do not know. <laughs> um, but uh, thank you for listening, and we'll talk at you next week. Bye. Yay. Bye.